This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. All right, welcome to HRT. We have Joseph Starchia tonight. Very excited to talk about his role in diversity recruiting and He's also a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. I want to hear all about those roles. So, Joseph, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Again, like you said, my name is Joseph Starchia. Um, I am a proud alumni of the Master's HR program, graduated in 2020. So, of course, it is a pleasure to be on here and revisit my roots within HR and then moved on to hold positions in Target, Amazon, and that placed me where I am now being a diversity recruitment program manager at Johns Hopkins University in medicine. And as you stated, I am pursuing my doctorate of education here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. That's so interesting. Where are you at in your doctoral program? Are you towards the dissertation and the exciting stuff? I just did my first dissertation memo, which may lead to what would eventually be my dissertation. But right now, I am still within the first year. So we are still working on and refining those skills to do quantitative and qualitative research. So right now, I'm still in the classes phase, but I'm, I'm actively thinking what I would like to do for my dissertation now. I don't know how you're doing work and school at the same time at that level. It's, congratulations. That's really great. So this season is all about well-being. I wanted to start by asking, what does well-being mean to you personally? Great question. So for me, when I look at what I consider to be the pillars of well-being, when we look at the mental, the physical, the financial, the social, it is not isolating those individually, but it is getting those to work in tandem with each other. Because I think we all know sometimes when one is thrown off, it throws the others off as well. When we talk about them separately, I think the conversation needs to change in how we integrate all of those elements of well-being together. So for me personally, it is how can I integrate that into my workplace, into my family life, into my individual essence of self? How do I get all of those to work together and then recognize when one is off track, it'll only be amount of time before the others go off track as well. And how do I rely on my support system, whatever my support system looks like, to aid me in getting those back in where they need to be? It's a multifaceted construct, this idea of well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we've talked about it in individual ways, in terms that, you know, our mental health, our physical health, but all of that is integrated. And I think that's where the conversation needs to move forward to. So shifting the lens to the organizational level, what does well-being mean when we're talking about a workforce or at an organization? I think when we, we talk about that, and I will use my work in DEI and DEI recruitment, one of the things I say, and I say it over and over, and I think it's becoming redundant with my team, but I want to make sure that we're not hiring people into burning buildings. And then they complain, or we say that they're complaining about the smoke and the fire. 
So what does that mean? That means that I want to make sure before we recruit people and that we hire people that we've created an environment of inclusion. I think when we talk about DEI, we talk about the D very much. We talk about that diversity, but it's that inclusion work that may keep the diversity from being, from continuing on and on, right? Because when people don't feel included, that's when they begin to, we bring them in the front door and then they leave out the back door. So organizations really have to look at what are the elements of inclusion. One of the working possibilities of my dissertation is how do we treat the one, perhaps the one individual who represents the only visible demographic in an organization? Because in 2023, we're still having organizations that are hiring their first one, right? They're only. And how do we include when there's one person who maybe represents that singular demographic, that has to begin before that individual is in the building. Because what we don't want to do is tokenize that individual, but we want to make sure that individual is included as well. So that well-being around inclusion, that well-being around not just um, having a say, but having a voice is vital. When they don't feel included, what toll does it take on their well-being? Or is that a reverse causality? <laughs> well, absolutely. So, you know, that, that's a great question because right now one of the things I'm researching is isolation mm. um, within organizations. And the research, the peer-reviewed research will tell us that it takes a physical toll. It feels like a loss, a, a loss of a friend, a loss of a loved one when you feel isolated. And when a person is not included, the performance is, is going to see a drop in performance. We know that there are elements of performance that lead to promotions, but not just performance, but how do you socially get along with people? So if you feel like you have to self-isolate, you may have a great performance, but then the questions may come up, can they lead people? Can they build a team? They always seem to be themselves. And many times we put the well-being onus on the individual not the corporation. Well, they want a good fit, right? They didn't seem to want to come to things. They didn't seem to want to be included. And we wrongfully, in some cases, put the ownership on the individual in the organization and not look at the organization ourselves, because I believe in many cases, once we start looking at the organization, the members of the organization have to look at themselves and put a mirror up to themselves and look at what role that they potentially play in isolating that higher. I think isolation is a real issue. Also authenticity. So I, I think I've seen it play out where somebody does come to all the events that they're invited to and they try to be there, but they're quiet and they're reserved and they're clearly not bringing their full self. Or maybe they're not able to talk about their family or lifestyle because it it's not the one that everybody else has at the organization. So how does authenticity and well-being go together? Well, they're absolutely hand in hand. So, you know, to your illustration, someone may be going to an event, but they're sitting in a corner. Someone may be going to an event where there's music playing, but they didn't get up to dance. So they didn't, you know, participate in the way that maybe their bosses would have liked them to because, you know, we're judged by our performance, but we're also judged how we engage in settings, especially when it comes to promotional opportunities and ways to move up and leading people. 
the challenge is sometimes that you feel conflicted as maybe the only employee. If you don't get up and dance, then you feel like you're ostracizing and you may be mitigating your chances to move up. If you do get up and dance, you perhaps feel like you're on display because you're already maybe the only person of that demographic. So you're really what, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois called that double-mindedness. You're aware of yourself, but you're also very cognizant of the world that you're in at the moment. I say this in my research is that how you treat the one will eventually be how you treat the many because we know demographic shifts are happening. So how you welcome that one will eventually be how the rest of the team will be treated. I do love the idea of dancing at work. <laughs> so in terms of well-being programming, like HR would roll out, if we included the diverse voices in the programming, what kind of things do you think that we would see happening differently? I think we would see less surface level DEI well-being initiatives. And I think we would see very tangible changes in the culture of the organization. There is one thing in organizations, it's one thing to have cultural awareness, but it's a totally different thing to have cultural integration. And I think many times we have cultural awareness. We're aware of what weak it is for a certain demographic, a certain diversity dimension, but we don't always have that cultural integration. You know, you say something really powerful about what HR would roll out, and we've we've almost segmented well-being. And I know that in my HR past, I have felt that HR was the department of compassion. Associates go to HR for compassion. You many times don't go to maybe your frontline manager. You don't go to your district manager. If you have an issue, HR is where you go because in many of our organizations, we've compartmentalized compassion. We haven't taught our frontline leaders compassion, our mid-level leaders, our operational leaders. We've left that to HR. Like this person is crying, this person doesn't feel included. You handle that HR. And after you fix them, bring them back and great. We have to integrate programs throughout all levels of the organization. Yeah, and it sounds like we need to get our first line managers up to speed on compassion. These are part of doing diversity, equity, inclusion, about doing well-being. Right, absolutely. So I teach a course, it's called Work, Family, and Career Considerations, and it has an equity lens. And the main takeaway from this course, and something that I've learned in the work family space, because it's a space I've been in for 15 years, but never in the DE&I lens, I've learned and the main takeaway is that there's not equal or equitable access to work family policies and programs. We're not rolling them out to everybody. It's the white collar workers that are sort of in middle level jobs who get some flexibility. Maybe they get telework, maybe they get family time or paid time off. And there's a whole lot of people in the population that don't have access to these programs. Are we rolling out well-being equitably and equally across organizations? First thing is we're absolutely not. I don't even think we are putting it into our budgetary considerations the way as a whole 
that we need to. And you're correct. We many times base our definition of well-being according to our lived-in experience, not the lived-in experience of others. Because to roll back a little bit, we don't have those diverse voices at the table that have the ability to have a voice to say what needs to be said so we get the same old, same old. So we get the white-collar roles that have access to maybe mental health days or have access to those things that maybe other roles don't have access to. You know, when we look at that as a whole, this is where you're starting to see when what was deemed the great resignation, people really started looking and feeling like, does my workplace care about all facets of my well-being? People really sat at home in some cases and looked around and decided my peace might have been more important than this role. Maybe downsizing. Maybe I don't need this stuff that I have. Maybe I don't need as much money as I thought I needed. And people really started to consider whether their workplace perhaps cared about their well-being as much as maybe the associate cared about the workplace's well-being. And I think we are in for that maybe again, I don't know when, but I think it's cyclical. As you see layoffs taking place, as you see, you can look at TikTok videos and you see CEOs maybe taking home these bonuses and other people perhaps are not, so they don't feel that's cared for. And that may play into financial well-being, but that's also my social well-being, my mental well-being. Like, am I cared for? And so the inequality of benefits is something that organizations really do need to concentrate on and get correct if they're hoping to retain those knowledge employees that have been with them. We know when we lose knowledge employees, we're just not losing one person. We may be losing 5, 10, 12 years of knowledge walking out that door. So well-being benefits have to evolve in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you talk about the lower income segment of the of the workforce, the essential workers you might call them, they have even less access to all of these things. And when you talk about would I work for a little bit less at a different place that I cared about my well-being, I don't think that option is open to people who aren't paid enough to even, you know, to afford any kind of lifestyle. So you saw those resignations as well. And and some of the wages have gone up, but I think financial well-being, like you said, is a big component of well-being that we haven't focused on in the past, but it's all integrated. Right, exactly. And it's all one piece. And to your point about those those entry-level um roles, yes, you know, it's it's almost I want to leave, but that old saying of the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. At least I know what to expect here, whether that be good, whether that be negative. Will I walk into a workplace where I don't know how the boss is going to be, where I maybe have used some semblance of power to negotiate a schedule that maybe works? I don't know if my new boss would care. Maybe I have to give up these well-being benefits for an environment that I can predict, even if it's a negative environment, 
it's an environment that I can still predict and I can still move around and mitigate. I'm going to give you a new title. You have several titles, but Chief Problem Solver. Okay. Does that like sound that. like something that, that works yeah, for you? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Chief, Chief Problem Solver, what would you see as a solution to that organizations should lean on right now? Mm, great question. I think because I am halfway living in academia, I think we need to first look at the data and look at literature and look at what is being done in the field of well-being and how can we operationalize that. I think a lot of times we throw things against the wall and we make it stick because perhaps it worked in my former company. Five years ago, it worked. Last year, it worked. But it's not what works now. So the first place we need to go to is the data and the literature. Right now, not just the academic data, but what are we doing about temping the climate within our workforce? Are we giving people things that they actually want? Are we solving problems that no one asked us to solve? You know, and many times we do that as organizations. We're solving problems that no one asked us to solve. And our employees are going, thank you, but that's not what we need. We don't need an additional pizza party. We don't need you know, these things. There are very tangible things that we need. So I think collecting that data and what's going on in the field of well-being externally, and then looking at what we need to do internally, what are our associates telling us? Uh, you know, everybody who, who leaves has a story. A lot of times I do exit interviews and I wish I had that information while they were still there. But then a lot of times it comes to empowerment and were they empowered to feel like they could say something. And unfortunately, sometimes they have said something. And we didn't, because it didn't meet a particular quantitative measure, we didn't do enough about it. But that one person who speaks up many times may represent 10 or 20. They just weren't bolded enough to say something, be it maybe they had tenure, um, their, their personality may be more extroverted. So they, they felt like saying something. So definitely looking at the research in the field, seeing how that research can be applicable to the workplace. And then actually taking a temperature of your workplace, be it surveys, be it focus groups, and then catering that well-being protocol to what your associates are looking for. Yeah, I agree with what you said. It can be very trendy and it can kind of miss the point and big investments in programs that can completely miss the point that it's not what we need or it's not what we need right now. And if you had asked us, we would have told you what we needed. <laughs> Right. And how much budget was blown off of that? How many benefits were not used maybe towards that local gym or towards that? Because that's not what we were looking for. We're still stressed. We're still, you know, working a team that should have 10. We're working with four. You know, we're trying to get more in every organization. We're trying to increase that productivity. And how can we, you know, do more with less at times? And we don't think about the toll on well-being that, 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 that causes on individuals when you're maybe used to doing a job with 10 people and maybe layoffs. You have, you know, that remorse of the fact that you stuck around and you saw other people cleaning their offices. We don't think about how that affects the remaining people in our organizations, but it does. Absolutely. I think in healthcare, you still see them being very understaffed. 
Absolutely. And it's really hard when you've been understaffed for so long, having come out of something that was so intense. It's easy to imagine why there's so much stress and burnout at this part of the game. What are you passionate about right now, either in the well-being space or the diversity space? Oh, awesome. Great. So I'm, I'm really passionate of getting individual stories. And I'm very passionate on the, the mental well-being of those who are, are doing work that may be very unpopular. So one of my papers is looking at the lived-in experience of Black practitioners in inaugural DEI spaces post-2020. And the challenge to that is in, in 2020, post-George Floyd, we saw a dearth of DEI roles open up. We look at Indeed, when we look at you know, LinkedIn, we saw a dearth of those open up. And if the organization, before they posted that role, perhaps have not prepared their organizational members for a DEI practitioner to walk in, what did that person walk into? What well-being of that individual practitioner took place when no one perhaps tempted the climate for whether they were ready for a DEI practitioner? What were the expectations of the organization versus the practitioner? Because you can do DEI different ways. You can do DEI that's culturally aware and you can do anti-racism. And if you have an organization and a practitioner that didn't come to those terms, then you do have the DEI burnout that you sometimes read about. You do have the extraction of DEI roles right now that you're seeing some, in, some states are attempting to entirely dismantle DEI within universities, within state roles. So right now I'm combining well-being and mental health because I, I want to look at what are the lived in experience of those who are in DEI, three years separated from 2020, three years from the very visible protests. How are they feeling? What does that look like? What does well-being look like for them? And I'm getting some pretty interesting stories out of that. So that's my passion right now. Storytelling is so powerful. Yes, and it's, and, and I love that qualitative side. I may become a quaint person eventually, but right now uh, I'm on that qualitative side of getting those individual stories and listening to people. And some people have gone, you're the first person who actually listened to me. I feel like I come into work every day, isolated, ready for a battle. These descriptions, because again, organizations may have had the term of that knee-jerk reaction to we need to do something, but maybe have not done the inner work of preparing members of that organization for this new DEI element to walk in. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that diversity programs were diversity programs. Like we hadn't even really thought about the inclusion part yet. So I, I feel like I hear what you're saying. It's a really hard place to be and, and you don't know what you're walking into, but at the same time, we in the science side have, have made a lot of progress in understanding that you need all the elements and the culture. I 
think it's just that infusing that into organizations is always going to be difficult if they're not ready. Well, I love that word infuse because that, that is a great word because it does have to go into every area of the organization. We, like I said about HR, I feel there's the Department of Compassion. We, we many times ask DEI to wear multiple hats. They have to be lowercase a anthropologists. They have to know every holiday, every, you know, and, and they almost are expected to be experts in everything dealing with people. And, but it cannot be just one department. And it has to be a interdisciplinary, interdepartmental approach towards DEI. It just doesn't stop by me bringing more diverse bodies into the workplace. How are we integrating them? How are we infusing them into the workplace? Are we introducing them into the workplace, but then they're still at the same roles five years later while other people have moved on? Like I said, do they not just have a say, do they have a voice? All those elements come from frontline leaders, HR, DEI, and top leadership commitment. We cannot count that out, that having that commitment, not just the espouse commitment, but having real metrics that demonstrate that there is a commitment is vital as well. Yeah, and I've seen in organizations where, where the diversity officer sits in the organizational chart really matters as well. Like that old-fashioned power dynamics, um, putting them right up there in a, in a visible but powerful role can, can make a lot of a difference too. It's, it's a signal at least that they're here in an important role and we're all taking it very seriously. Yeah, absolutely, in my, in my tacit knowledge, I'm still researching, but I do feel like in those DEI roles, those roles that report directly to maybe the CEO perhaps perform better than maybe that role when it answers to HR, when it answers to another department. Because as you said, that nonverbal communication of where that role sits um, is integral to how serious uh, frontline leaders and mid-level managers are going to take it. Moving from sort of what you're passionate about, what do you think is the next big thing when it comes to well-being at work or diversity, equity, inclusion, or where they intersect? Right. I think the next big thing is the integration of all of it. And I think we're starting to see that. We're starting to see the employee demand that that integration. I worked retail for a long time and, you know, I'll age myself, but I'm very old school and working retail. And I remember having a manager telling me, when you walk through those doors, your personal life is out there and you are on stage here. We called the sales floor a stage, a, a little, that's what we called it, because you were expected to leave everything at the door, your personal problems are your personal problems, and while you're on stage, you are all about the customer service and putting on a smile, and I don't think that's becoming as acceptable as it used to be toward our workers. Again, we need to find ways to integrate those pillars of well-being to where I don't stop being a father when I walk through those doors. My bills perhaps didn't stop when I walked through those doors. My car didn't automatically get fixed when I walked through those doors. I, I don't stop thinking about those things while you're asking me to put on a performance. And we have data around and research around the long-term effects of covering and performing. And I'm not saying 
saying that we have to give bad service at our job if our job is a customer service oriented job. But what does that look like? Maybe you don't put me at the front of the line today. Maybe is there a role that I can do today that maybe is not customer facing? Maybe I need a few extra breaks to make those phone calls. Maybe I need that time off. Maybe for a few weeks, I need that flexible schedule. And towards well-being, it doesn't always have to be a formal program. It can be the integration of well-being into that individual's workday to know that that leader, that manager cares. And some of my best managers were the ones that pushed me, that drove me, but also I was able to come to them when I had an issue. I was able to be my full self. And I think what we're seeing is people want to be interviewed as their full selves. They want to be hired as their full selves. They want to be mentored as their full selves. They want to be promoted as their full selves. And they don't want to have to sacrifice any piece of their well-being. And I, when I was a manager in retail, I would have young men and women ask me all the time, like, what did it take for you to get here? And before it was strictly maybe what was my education, what personal career path did I take? And what I hear more now is, it's almost of a, what would I have to give up to get where you are? Because we're always assessing our definitions of success. You know, we're always doing that. And what my definition of success in my 20s is not, I won't age myself, but it's not what it is now. And so we're always assessing that. And I'm hearing that from younger people. I'm hearing that not from what does it take to get where you are, but what part of myself do I have to let go potentially to get where you are? And I think if we don't get ahead of that in organizations, we're going to lose talent. We're not going to retain talent as long. We're not going to develop talent. And we'll get into this cycle to where people are only spending maybe a year or two and they're constantly rotating out. Yeah, and that's not a great place to be in an HR world (laughs) for managers to lose that talent all the time. Yeah, I do. I hear you. I think that there is this sort of old school, I'm aging myself as well, old school (laughs) ideas about success and achievement as sort of the only marker. And I think as as a big trend, we're, we're saying hold up. If we, if that's our North star, nobody feels great. Oh, absolutely. No, you have younger people in the workforce that 4k doesn't mean much to them. You know, that's not what's going to keep them around that 401k and stock options. That's not, they want to know if I want to go to a music festival, can I get a flexible schedule? Can I, you know, do some of this work at home if it's possible? Those are the things that are, that are mattering. So again, I feel like we have that mentality that we're attempting to sell well-being through our lens, through our definition, and not catering it towards our demographic and the people who work for us. Yeah, so just to summarize, it's multifaceted, this whole idea of well-being. Everybody has all these different aspects of well-being, and they're, they're trying to juggle them in a way that everything gets attention but it's only when one gets really out of whack that it needs attention. So you wanna keep all of those 
satisfied, I guess, your financial health, your mental health, your physical well-being. We've talked a lot about social relationships, and I do think that's a form of well-being. So for each individual, they have all of that up in the air, and, and they're trying to make it all sort of come together. Yes, they have it up in the air, and then it comes along to how does work, how does the organization help them keep those plates spinning? Because we all come with those things. They may not all look alike, but we all come with those things that can cause our well-being to regress at times. And, you know, sometimes instead of that employee feeling punished for maybe having a bad day and then we send them home, maybe they just need someone to talk to. Maybe they need to move somewhere else for the day in the organization. But if they do need to go home, do they have the days to be able to do that? Are those there? We know about, you know, part-time employees many times don't have those vacation days, those sick days, those mental health days to take. So they have to take care of their mental health at their financial peril. So again, we're fixing one element of well-being while, <laughs> while tearing down another element of well-being. And that's what we have to address. How do we fix this holistically and not have to tear down one element of well-being in order to fix another? Yeah. And then there's the really important aspect of their immediate supervisor being able to be caring and supportive and compassionate in this process, because that seems to be a really important component. Absolutely. Teaching frontline managers to care and what does care look like and what does compassion look like while still getting the job done, correct? I mean, we still have a business to run, but what does that compassion, compassionate leadership look like? How is that operationalized is where we need to do a better job. Yeah. And then the last thing is this idea of success and achievement. It can either be in, in I guess, the opposite of well-being. It can be the only thing. It can be the thing. Um, but a lot of people are moving away from that. So instead of it being the opposite of well-being, it could be a part of well-being. So integrating that idea of we are multifaceted, well-being means a lot of things, our success and our achievement, not just financially, but in, in um, I guess, in the meaning of our work and how what we bring to our work also is a component of ourselves. And um, if we integrate success into a broader, um, I guess, repertoire of what well-being means it can still be part of it it's just it's not going to be the only focus anymore right it's about being at workplaces that integrate every element of my well-being uh it's not asking me to be a different person um when i walk in the door it's not asking me to assimilate because many times i believe when we talk about inclusion we're really talking about assimilation and that is a whole other <laughs> conversation but i think many times we're looking for that assimilation piece come as you are, but don't stay that way too long. And when we feel that pressure to change, that can take a toll on our mental well-being uh, to where the financial well-being may not be worth it. The physical well-being may not be worth it. And then that's when people begin to look at, okay, maybe you know I wanna be somewhere where I can be my full self. Maybe I need to look somewhere else. Or maybe I can be my full self longer somewhere else before perhaps I need to look again. Kind of brings me back to that idea of what is well-being when you look at it at an organizational level or workforce. I think a well workforce or a healthy workforce 
is somewhat stable because when you have a lot of turnover, it's probably a sign that there's some either toxic elements, there's not inclusion, there are problems that are creating well-being problems for individuals, and then they're leaving. So it kind of is that system approach where if you see a lot of turnover, you're probably not a healthy workforce. Absolutely. And, and the, the challenge is not to just blame the workforce is you hear those pat answers. Well, I mean, this is a tough gig and, you know, we lose people all the time and, you know, this supervisor, right. This supervisor. Oh, thank you for that. Because yes, you hear that is that they're not looking for meaningful work and they don't work the same way that other generations work. And I think what you have to play into that is the redefinition of success, the redefining what well-being is. And, you know, we, we're, we're quick at times to, again, put the onus on the associate when we're not looking in the mirror, when we're giving people well-being options that they didn't ask for, when they don't feel like they have a voice, when all we've done is diversify the workforce, but we haven't had the inclusion of the workforce, we haven't had the, the equitability of the workforce. And so I'm a big fan of data. And when you have a supervisor who's turning over like crazy, you have to look at what is it about this supervisor in particular, no other department maybe has this level of turnover, what's going on here? But then not just recognize it, what are you gonna do about it? Cause employees get very frustrated when they've given you the answer time and time again, and nothing is done. I went to HR for what? I put my career perhaps on the line for what? Now they know I said something. Now I have to go back Monday and look at this same supervisor. I don't even want to go to work. So we have to address that. I absolutely agree. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think these conversations are important. And these conversations have to continue to happen outside of the theoretical, outside of the university space. And it has to be operationalized in organizations. Because right now people do spend a significant amount of their life working, we, we do. And how do we make that workplace more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive, while protecting all the elements of the well-being of the individual? That the fact that they're open to maybe recommending the job to other people, that they're not going on glass door and <laughs> ripping the workplace apart. So it's, it's very important that we use data to drive our well-being protocols and we use research, we listen to our employees, we follow up with our employees after we get the data and we roll this out in focus groups and then perhaps roll it out widely. And again, continue to listen to the voice of our associates. Yeah, I love that. I don't know if you've heard the saying, nothing about me without me. And it's that notion of, of if you're going to design a program for me, Surely you must want to know what my needs are. Absolutely. And Perfect. including those diverse voices, not just assuming what people need, but going around and asking. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRT. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. 
HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development, visit our website at villanovahrd.com.